Hi, and welcome back to The Curious Case of Freedom. Viewing the state as a natural parallel to the family structure has been used as a comparative rhetorical device by various political philosophers, dating as far back as Aristotle in his monumental book, Politics. Simply put, the parents are parallels to the benevolent heads of state, and their offspring is likened to the citizens of a body politic. While this comparison can be useful in different ways, I find that there is a danger there. If we are not careful, the nature of the relationship between ourselves and our legitimate caregivers, our parents, versus society's relationship with the often ill-defined institution of the state, becomes nebulous. While none of us would be here if it weren't for our parents' actions, and while we truly depend on our parents for our survival in our formative years, the state did not precede civilization. In fact, the state is an extremely young development in the history of humanity. And while almost every parent struggles with fears and maybe even neuroses of different kinds that they may find themselves inadvertently projecting onto their offspring, nevertheless, one of the objectives of the parent is ultimately to help usher their child into maturity so that the youngling grows to be an independent, sovereign individual. The same cannot be said about the state. No state ushers its citizens to be independent and sovereign from it. For if the citizens were truly independent and sovereign, the state as an institution would be superfluous and cease to exist. If the comparison between the relationship of the state and society versus parents and their children has any merit at all, I believe that it is in these two axioms that can be found in various child psychology studies. Firstly, that the more you try to control, the more you need to control. And secondly, that regardless of what you think you teach, you teach how you act. Children who are controlled and micromanaged do not learn self-reliance. They tend to depend more and more on their parents and various figures of authority to tell them how to act, what to do, when and how. Trying to control one's children, I believe, stems partly from a lack of trust in the child's intrinsic abilities, sensitivities, capacity to learn and to regulate themselves. But more fundamentally, I believe that it is a form of projection of one's own internalized fears inhibitions and taboos. And while it may prove expedient in the short term to control your children in order to get them to do what you want, to act properly, to fit in, and also to stay safe, in the long run, I believe that it may have dire consequences as well. The child learns not to trust their own faculties. They learn that their motivation for acting a certain way is dictated by an extrinsic set of expectations from their caregivers, which later in life is projected on various figures of authority or on society at large. I should do this or that because it is expected of me, or society demands it, and so on. It is a form of conforming process that starts by oppressing the child's organism's natural spontaneous behavior and attempting to replace it by outside control. As Alice Miller pointed out in her book, The Drama of Being a Child, oppression and the forcing of submission 
begin in the very first weeks of an infant's life. The child learns two forms of coping with their controller, submission or rebellion. By submission, children become docile, passive, and accept their fate. They learn to disassociate from their own needs, to disregard their own boundaries, and to retroflect. In other words, to turn aggression against themselves rather than bringing it into contact. Aggression is viewed by many as something to be avoided at all costs. However, in the broad sense of its clinical usage, it is indispensable to happiness and creativity. It is not by repression of the aggression that aggression is overcome. It is still there, and since it requires an outlet and outer contact is forbidden, it will be turned against the self. Becoming aware of one's aggressive impulse, on the other hand, helps put it to constructive use. By rebellion, children find themselves displaying aggression against the unnatural proposition that they may be controlled and ruled by outside forces. It is then that the parent will find themselves trying to control more and more, with punishments, rewards, and so on. And once again, the more they will try to control, the more they will need to control. While the child fights autonomy wars, craving independence and self-reliance, in both cases of submission and rebellion, children are robbed of their own natural faculties. Their actions are dictated by outside forces, which in time are introjected. Or, as Fritz Perls, Paul Goodman, and Ralph Hefferlein explained in the book Gestalt Therapy, Excitement and Growth in the Human Personality, they become a way of acting, feeling, evaluating, which you have taken into your system of behavior, but which do not belong to you, which have therefore not been assimilated in such fashion as to make it a genuine part of your organism. You took it in on the basis of forced acceptance, a forced and therefore pseudo-identification, so that even though you may now resist its dislodgement as if it were something precious, it is actually a foreign body. Parenting, I believe, is one of the most challenging things anyone could ever undertake. It is all-encompassing, and it is the one experience in a person's life where they can truly be said to be responsible for another human being. For if my responsibility is my ability to respond, how can I ever respond for anyone else but for myself and for my child, who would not be here if it weren't for my actions? and is completely dependent on me for their survival and growth. I am not a parent myself, and of course I am not trying to claim any wisdom on what parenting should look like. I can only imagine how difficult it is to raise a child, and how scary it can be. I don't mean to suggest that parents should let their children do whatever they please, whenever they please, with no supervision, guidance, and care. However, from the Swiss psychologist Jean Piaget, known for his research in child development, through the works of Dr. Thomas Gordon, the Peaceful Parenting Movement, and to the works of Alfie Cohn, the author of Unconditional Parenting, and other wonderful books, there is an abundance of studies that aim to help parents develop strategies 
of dealing with their children with empathy and respect. Unfortunately, many of these studies are often ignored or even vehemently opposed by parents who either contend that, well, my parents did like this with me and I turned out fine, or my parents did everything wrong and so I will just do the complete opposite, or any other rationalization in between those two poles. While parents unwittingly live out the same patterns with their children as they did with their parents, perpetuating a destructive dynamic through their internalized behavioral habits and their unexamined inherited beliefs. I believe that the empathy and respect that people usually reserve for their friends, colleagues and neighbors is seldom experienced by their children. And as Alice Miller pointed out, it is absolutely urgent that people become aware of the degree to which this disrespect for children is persistently transmitted from one generation to the next, perpetuating destructive behavior. Miller continues to elaborate. Someone who slaps or hits another adult or knowingly insults her is aware of hurting her. Even if he doesn't know why he is doing this, he has some sense of what he is doing. But how often were our parents and we ourselves toward our own children unconscious of how painfully deeply and abidingly, they and we injured a child's tender budding self. This brings me back to the second axiom, which is, regardless what you think you teach, you teach how you act. When as children we were approached with demands by our parents, when we were expected to be obedient, and were either punished or rewarded for our behavior, we implicitly learn that those are valid strategies for problem-solving, for connecting with others. When our parents gave us time-outs or withheld tenderness in order to teach us a lesson, these adverse childhood experiences will haunt us and unknowingly direct our actions in our personal relationships as we grow older. They become normalized behavior. When we were punished with the excuse that our actions have consequences, we learn to conflate the actual real-world consequences of our actions with the choice of an authority figure to exert punishment on us. The personal responsibility of the punisher is deflected onto us as if we made him do it. I believe that in these ways a comparison can be drawn between our relationship with our parents and our relationship with people wielding state control with one important distinction. We are not children. We don't have to repress anything. We can say yes when we want to say yes and say no when we want to say no. But putting that aside for a moment, in the best of cases, heads of states have an ideology and a conviction of what things should look like, of how society should be managed, a moralistic judgment as to how people should behave. But since, to their conviction, when left to their own devices, people will not act responsibly, they should be made to do so. Therefore, they must be managed, must be directed, controlled and regulated. But the more you try to control, the more you need to control. The reality is that most people hold these views that society must be centrally planned 
controlled and directed to one degree or another. And it is my opinion that it is precisely this sort of conviction that perpetuates the need for more and more control. When we both communicate and receive the message that in order for society to function, we must be regulated, this belief tends to separate people from who they truly are, social creatures, empathic animals, and moral agents. They either submit or rebel, but do not trust in their own humanity and the humanity of others, in the spontaneous order that may only come about when people's natural sense of morality and empathy is unfettered by dictates and demands. Some people, upon hearing this, might think me naive. They might be thinking that people are dangerous and must be held under control. But as I mentioned earlier, I don't believe that control actually saves us from danger. People are dangerous. In fact, we would not be moral agents if we had no potential for destruction. But since aggression is in our nature, when it is repressed, it tends to fester, and ultimately, the danger becomes much graver. Control only provides us with the illusion of safety. And even if we accept the threat of punishment as a viable means of obtaining justice, which is the state's strategy for keeping the peace, punishment does not prevent. It comes in after the fact. And since most criminals break the law with the intention of not getting caught, the thought of punishment rarely deters them. If it did, shouldn't the prisons be empty and gratuitous by now? Which brings me once again to the second axiom, that regardless of what you think you teach, you teach how you act. Since every nation-state has come about through violence and conquest, rather than by voluntary exchange in which both sides stand to benefit, since democratic elections determine who may force their views on the rest of society for a period of four years at a time, since state funding is reliant on coercive taxation, whereby citizens are compelled to pay for projects regardless of whether they support them or not, violence is normalized as a modus operandi, as a way of organizing society. Indeed, it is very hard for us to imagine things running smoothly without taxation that we are told is the price that we pay for a civilized society. The language that is cultivated in the state we're in, pun intended, is a language of violence, of threats, of appeal to authority. Do this or else. Don't do that or you will be punished. When punishment and retribution are the norm, rather than restoration, empathy and compassion, a vicious circle of frustration and contempt is created, and violence begets violence. When individuals receive the message that they must obey or they will be punished, they do not feel respected as the conceptual, reasoning and empathic creatures that they are. This often leads to frustration, frustration that requires an outlet. Individuals then, unconsciously, seek someone smaller than them, weaker than them, whom they can exercise such authority over. Often it is children who find themselves at the receiving end of such frustration. Children who proceed to grow up 
legitimizing a body politic that solves societal problems with a language of demands, with coercive laws and regulations, rather than by appeal to reason and empathy. And so the cycle of contempt continues to turn. I believe that systemic problems seldom, if ever, have systemic solutions, which is why freedom starts with the individual. Just as we can reparent ourselves, allow ourselves anger and frustration, allow ourselves to forgive our parents for the injuries that they inadvertently inflicted upon us, and be thankful for all that they have given us, knowing that they have done the best that they could with the instruments that they had, so too can we learn to break that circle of violence and contempt, promoting a philosophy that fosters compassion, respect, empathy, and reason, without feeling the need neither to submit nor to rebel. And as unattainable a goal as this may sound to some people, what is the alternative? Thank you. When you come 